Welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I hope you're enjoying your Super Bowl weekend. I don't know who you're rooting for, the 49ers or the Chiefs. But uh, nonetheless, hopefully it's just a good football game. You might get the, together with some friends and family and uh, have a good time. You know, it's kind of one of those unofficial holidays, right? I'm sure all of us will be watching the officials and see how well they do. I hope they have a good game and things go smoothly. Um, obviously, it's quite an honor to work a Super Bowl. Um, but whenever I'm watching a sporting contest, I definitely pay attention to the officials, no matter what kind of contest it is. I like to see what they're doing out there. We've got a lot of stuff in this current episode. It's a little bit longer. Um, got a couple of clarifications on some things. Uh, one about uh, the high school quiz that I'd gone over the last few weeks. And also, um, I got some feedback on uh, pay nationally uh, for high school officials. So I'll talk about that briefly. I'm also going to talk about uh, conflicts versus arguments, um, how to um, clear your head before you go to a contest that you're going to be working, like after work or something like that, how you get yourself in the right state of mind, um, following protocols, you know, taking care of business, doing the right stuff that you're supposed to be doing, and uh, how you deal with kicking a call, you know, if you mess something up on the diamond. How do you handle that without beating yourself up about it? And how do you move on and, and try to improve from it? I had a situation happen to me um, this past weekend when I was helping out at uh, an umpire camp here in West Michigan. And I'll discuss that and tell you how I try to go through that, use myself as a personal example, I guess. So hopefully everything's going well. Maybe you got yourself a new pair of uh, AirPods or something like that. You're listening to the podcast. Hopefully they're working well uh, so you can sit back. And enjoy another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I think at some point or another, I've mentioned uh, how you deal with uh, mistakes that you make on the field, or if you, you blow a call. Or you don't do something correct. You you make some kind of mistake. It could be a mechanics mistake. You know, you're in the wrong spot. Um, You make an improper rotation. Um, You don't uh, read a fly ball properly. Um, Obviously, you know, you you blow a safe out or something like that um, for some reason or another. Um, And how you deal with that, Um, especially in the game when you've got to be ready to deal with the next play that's coming your way and, and not make a second mistake, right? So I had a, a, a situation that happened um, with me when I was helping out this past weekend at the Bruce Stone Senior uh, Umpire Camp here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, I went and I wasn't like instructing, but I was um, talking to all the campers and doing some things that uh, Bruce Stone Jr. wanted me to do. And, um, you know, I'm helping out a little bit here and there, but uh Watching all the sessions that I can, you know, whether it be cage work or, or the uh, the base work, and so I was observing the base work uh, with some of the campers, and I was asked to to help out a little bit with certain situations. So we had a situation uh, with first and third, and we were working on rundowns, and I was uh, the uh, base umpire, and so um, the situation was to be that eventually we had a rundown between third and home. Uh, the runner on first has kept going. He ends up on third, and both guys um, are standing on third base. Um, that's kind of the scenario that we wanted to happen. And, of course, um, as I'm sure many of you know, the proper thing when, when you have two runners standing on a base, you, know, you can look up the rules if you'd like. Um, the guy that was originally there, you know, he had the right to the base, so he's safe, and the, the trailing runner, he's out. Now, the important thing here is you've got to make sure that you call that correctly, right? you got to point at this guy. You're safe. Give that safe sign. Point at the other guy. You're out, or whatever way you're doing it. Um, so for whatever reason, um, we had this whole situation go down. Ends up being my call with the guy there. And I point at the incorrect guys and call the opposite, all right? I know the rule, uh, but... You know, I was kind of, I was very irritated with myself that I screwed this up. I mean, 
seems fairly simple, but but I did. So I've noticed over the years um, what I've been able to do when I make a mistake like that, um, it really bothers me. I mean, I expect myself to be perfect. I know I'm not. This won't be the last time that I screw something up like that. Um, those things happen. Um, I'm not a pro. I didn't go to pro school. So I don't have things as ingrained in my head as some guys do. So, I mean, I am an amateur. I try to be the best amateur I can, but, you know, I, I do silly things. But the the thing I that I've learned is instead of beating yourself up about it, which, which you do for a little bit, and sometimes I might do that for like, I give myself like 24 hours or the rest of the day. Um, but then I have to work through the problem in my mind and say, well, why did you why did you make this silly call? I mean, you know better than that. What, what did you do wrong? You know, so that I don't do this again. I mean, that's really the whole point, right? And so I concluded on this that I was, you know, as is the culprit with many problems in umpiring, I was too fast. I wasn't I didn't just give myself literally that second or so more to uh, just process the situation and go, "Oh yeah. Guy that was there before, he's safe." guy that's trailing he's out i mean just just thinking for a second yep trail runner's out that's all i had to think okay and i would have just done the mechanic correctly and it would have been fine but i didn't i was just a little fast and you don't have to be that fast to screw something up like that i mean that's not a call that happens that often but you know it, it can happen a couple times a season depending on how many games you do it's not like it never happens so um it's one of those things that you got to make sure you do it right and if you don't um, there can definitely be some serious consequences. I mean, that could have been a real circus um, in, in a real situation. So, um, yeah, a little embarrassing. Um, not what I wanted to do, but, you know, I guess, you know, you learn from it, right? I guarantee you <laughs> that this season and probably hopefully for the next several, <laughs> um, I will not make that mistake. I will not have that happen to me again. And that's kind of the way I look at it, you know, I, there are, you know, times maybe you're too fast on a certain call or whatever, and I don't do that. I remember several years ago, um, like on uh, catcher's interference, you know, when the uh, better swings and hits part of the catcher's glove. Might even hit a fly ball or hit the ball halfway decently, but it's really not really that hard of a call. I mean, it's it's an all audio call. You hear it, and, you know, you point, you, you you know, you say you announce this interference and the play plays out the way it is and, and then, you know, they get their choice, right? So, I don't know, there was a, a situation where I just, you know, I, I, I heard it and I didn't make the call quickly enough and then you don't make it. And so I have not made that mistake since then. Every time I've had catcher's interference, I've, I've been right on top of it and I make sure I do that. This, to me, is a similar type of thing. You know, last, uh, I think it was here in the fall, I had a very strange play that was similar to, um, you know, with the two runners on the same base, which we got right. Uh, actually, my base umpire kind of kind of butchered it a little bit. So I was working the plate, and and uh, we had a runner on second base, and um, either zero or one outs. Um, it, it was less than two outs. And uh, there was a fly ball to uh, shallow right center. And uh, it wasn't a guarantee the guy was going to catch it. So um, the guy on you know, second base was going to tag up, thinking he might catch it. And then he decides he's going to go halfway. And then he kind of moves back toward the base. And he's just going back and forth. He's very indecisive of what he's doing. Nonetheless, the ball drops in. So the guy that hit the ball, of course, the batter runner, he's running hard. Okay, he's going to try to get a double out. It's kind of a, you know, Texas League, you know, pop up to center field that, you know, he's a pretty fast runner. He's going to get a, a double. Well, as he's running the second uh, and the throw's coming in the second and the silly runner that was on second is also coming back to second. So now we got the batter runner going to second and the, the solo runner that was on second heading back at the same time. They get to the base at the same time. They're both standing there. The throw, the throw beats or the throw does not beat the runner from, you know, the batter runner there. He's called safe, all right? Um, and while he's, you know, he's tagged, he's on the base, tagged, safe. The My base umpire calls him safe. Then they tag the runner, you know, that was originally on second base. And then for some reason, 
he takes off and runs to third, and he gets in a little rundown, and they tag him out. He's out. All right, time. I uh, have a little conference. We have a conference with uh, Bass Umper and myself that when they were there and they were both being tagged, which is what I saw, I asked him what he saw, and he agreed with that, but you know, he called them safe originally because he beat the throw, which I, I can understand that. It's, it's a strange play. But at that point, when they were both on the base, you know, the trail runner, which is the batter runner, um, he he's out, all right? So he had to be called out for that. And then the other guy, he was just kind of being stupid. He got himself in a rundown, so, you know, he's out on his own. That was that was his problem. So they ended up with a double play on the situation. Um, we got that right. I, I've never seen that play before. Um, I guess you never know. Might see it again, but it was a very strange play. So it's like... I had this situation today in this, you know, in the gym, (laughs) which is a pretty simple play. It's a simple version of the play. And for whatever reason, I'm not thinking and I mess it up. But then you get a complicated one like that and and you get it right. But, you know, that's the way it is. Baseball is very humbling. Um, You think you're doing well. You think you got, you know, a big grip on all this umpiring stuff and everything else is going with it. And, you know, it seems like every once in a while it just kind of something pops up and says, hey, you got to keep working. Um, You got to keep your head in the game. You got to keep on top of everything and uh, not think that, you know, you're that much better than anybody else because, you know, you're just as prone to to anybody else to make some silly mistake. So you got to be on guard all the time and um, and be focusing. So, I mean, that's really the lesson I'm going to take from this. Um, I, I wasn't happy with that. And, you know, it wasn't even really a game. But you know what? It really bothers me. I guess that's why I, I have accomplished a few things. And those things are um, the things that bother me and make me want to be better. Um, so I don't know how you guys handle those kind of things. That's how I handle it. And um, I always try to use it as a learning experience. It still bothers me for a little while. Like even right now as I talk about it, it still bothers me. In a few days, I'll be over it. And it'll just be... A, a kind of humorous uh, learning experience. But, um, you know, those things, I, I guess that's what makes you try to get better and um, have that drive to get better is to try to eliminate all those things. I don't think that's ever possible. <laughs> I'm going to screw something silly up again. I, I know I will. I like to think I won't, but something will happen. Um, and hopefully I'll just learn from that and move on. And hopefully it's not too... Um, too drastic of a thing that I that I kick or something like that, but uh, that that's the nature of umpiring, I guess. I'd like to do a little clarification. If you recall, over the last few episodes, I did a baseball umpires quiz concerning Federation um, high school rules. I concluded that uh, last week, and uh, I got a. A text from uh, a colleague and and mentor Nick Sweeney concerning one of the questions I had that read with a runner on first base F1 accidentally delivers a pitch off the side of his leg the ball rolls 20 feet from the mound and crosses the foul line before it stops and your choices were a balk B a ball is called or C no pitch now I had a similar play in a game I had a, a couple of years ago, and I think I kind of convoluted the question with my situation because in my game, nobody was on base, and the ball did not cross the foul line, and it was no pitch, and it's like the first and only time I've ever seen that happen. However, in this situation, there is a runner on first. So even with a runner on first, if the ball crosses the foul line like it does, it still is a ball. However, um, if it would have been my situation um, and it didn't, it would have been a balk. So um, if that confused anybody else out there, I just want to make sure that's clarified. That's uh, in the high school rules and the NFHS rules. It's rule 614 if you want to look it up and, um, and make sure you're familiar with that rule in case it ever happens to in one of your games. Hopefully you follow the podcast on uh, the Facebook page, which is the Hammer Podcast. We've got a pretty good number of 
uh, member so far. And um, I had a little conversation between a couple of listeners uh, concerning a topic I brought up um, in a previous episode about pay. All right. So I I'd mentioned that um, we had a slight pay increase here um, in West Michigan, and uh, a varsity baseball game now earns $65 a game. And uh, so I had a couple of gentlemen, Todd Edgar and uh, Michael uh, Baird, that uh, were talking about what the pay was in, in their area of the country. So um, basically, Todd kind of started out, he said, I listened to the pod today about how much umpires make. He says, Alabama was like Michigan up until this year, $65 a game for varsity. It's very much on the low end. <clears throat> he said, we got a raise this year, and now we get $80 a game for varsity, 65 for JV if they play seven, $55 if they play five, or if it's you know got a time limit. Seems pretty good. That's a pretty good increase. I mean, $80 um, for a uh, varsity baseball game, high school game, that's pretty good. And Michael uh, responded to that. He said that he has uh, just moved to Wisconsin this year, and it's 65 for uh, varsity and 50 for sub-varsity, which is very similar to um, Michigan. We're 58 for sub-varsity here in uh, West Michigan. But he's, anyway, he said last year he was in Maryland, and it was $90 for varsity, $81 for sub-varsity. Um, but, you know, in Maryland, that's a much higher cost of living, and that certainly does factor into it. I mean, everybody needs to understand that. So um, nonetheless, you can see that some areas are a little bit on the uh, on the lower end. I would say the standard of living and the cost of living is is pretty average here in West Michigan. It seems like we maybe should be a little bit uh, more than that, but, uh, you know, one step at a time. But anyway, it was interesting that uh, um, Michael and Todd shared those uh, those figures, and uh, I appreciate that. And I thought that uh, some of you guys would like to hear them as well. Again, if you have any comments about those things, feel free to, you know, send me an email or um, share it on the Facebook page um, if you are already on there. If you're not, get on there and check some things out. So through the Facebook page, Michael Baird, an umpire out of Wisconsin now, who I guess previously was in Maryland, uh, sent me a message concerning a potential topic, which I thought was a very interesting topic, and I'm going to talk about it. His uh, message read, Hi, Kevin. Really enjoy your podcast. An idea for a future topic, mentally preparing for a game. Many of us go straight from a day job to the field, and any tips and tricks you use to clear your head of the workday, family things, the horrible traffic, getting to the field, etc., so uh, we can call a good game. And, uh, yeah, I think this is a good topic. I know we got a lot of uh, high school officials that uh, listen to the show. Um, but even if you're a collegiate official, you, you frequently got to get off work and uh, get to a location. You might have to be there earlier than your high school uh, brethren. But uh, nonetheless, you've got to get there, and sometimes you got to go a little bit farther. So definitely uh, something to think about. I have some things I do. I'm not saying what I do is is the one and only way to, to handle it. But maybe by me explaining what I do to try to help get ready, um, I might give you some ideas on what you could do if that is an issue for you. All right? First, I think it's important to eliminate any potential stresses. All right? You contact your partner uh, at least 24 hours before your contest. Uh, and make sure, you know, you know when they're going to get there, what kind of car they drive, where they're going to park. If it's a high school game, you got to change in the parking lot where you're going to do that. If you both have been there so you're familiar with where the field is located, because sometimes things are a little quirky at a site and you don't, you know, the field is behind some building and it's hard to see from the road or something like that. Or if it's a collegiate game, you know, if they have a place to change for you, um, you know, what time you're planning on being there. Usually here um, in my neck of the woods, um, college games are supposed to be there at least an hour before. Um, most guys are there before that even. Um, in high school games, you should be there at least a half an hour before, and frequently guys are there earlier than that as well. So if you get those things all 
out of the way, that's a little less stress that you have to deal with. You know what's going on. I like to know, you know, am I doing the plate or am I working the bases? I, th- that is the difference to me. You know, when I'm driving there, I start thinking about what I'm going to be doing for that. I mean, obviously, if it's a doubleheader, you're doing both. But even if it is, I want to know if I'm working the plate first or in the second game. So um, I think that that helps you get in a mindset as well. So make sure that the school knows that you're coming. Just take care of all that kind of business. You got the directions, the proper directions, the proper address. I have a Garmin in my car that I just plug in an address. Even if I've been there many times, you know, there's certain schools, of course, I'll go to uh, every year. But I was plugging in there anyway, so I don't have to think about it. It's just taking me the right way. If there's some kind of road construction or a traffic jam or something, and I got to like quickly get off the highway, it will just reroute me so I can get there as quickly as possible. And I have to think about, oh boy, well, which way I'm supposed to go? I'm on the side of town. I'm not on very often. I don't know these roads as well over here. Those kind of things. Obviously, if it's a college game, you're driving a farther distance and you easily could be in a city that you're not familiar with at all or on some small campus someplace or whatever it might be. So I do that um, not because I don't necessarily remember how to get there. It's because I just I just want that stress taken off of me. So I do all those things. I like to listen to music on the way there. Um, frequently, I'll, you know, I'm a big fan of the Beatles. So I have like the Beatles channel on, something that's pleasant to listen to. Uh, You know, if you're by yourself, man, you can sing along or something like that. And you're thinking about those things and you're thinking about if you're working the plate, you know, the kind of things you need to do to make sure you're successful working the plate. Things you've been working on lately. You know, maybe your timing hasn't been the best. Uh, Maybe you're um, concerned about, um, you know, how your timing is on the bases or how you're judging fly balls or, um, you know, your rotations or um, what you're going to talk about in the pregame with your partner, those kind of things. All right. So I'm thinking through those, thinking about the coaches and the teams. If you're familiar with the teams at all and the coaches, um, I like to frequently look up uh, the names of coaches. If I don't know them, if it's possible, a uh, high school, sometimes that's hard. They don't always list those things as easily on their websites and stuff. But if you're working uh, collegiate ball, frequently, you know, you should be able to find out the head coach's names and um, names of the catchers. If you're going to be working the plate, that's always a nice thing to know as well. So those are the things I kind of do that kind of relieve some of the stress because you you know those going in, right? Um and just, you know, have a relaxing drive over there. Maybe maybe, maybe you want to listen to a podcast on your way there. Maybe you like talk radio. Whatever it is that's going to make something um, uh, peaceful for you to help you kind of relieve some stress as you get there. And then I just slowly start thinking about the, the, what my role is going to be in this first game that I'm going to be working. The first or second, you know, if, or if it's just a solo game, right? So that's kind of how I do that. Yeah, you know... There might be something going on at work. Um, there might be something uh, with your family. You might get stuck in a traffic jam. I've had that, so I try to leave plenty early enough so that if I do get delayed, there won't be a problem. Has Have there been problems before? Yeah, I mean, I had a, a game that I had to drive uh, about an hour to Kalamazoo from Grand Rapids. It's about an hour drive, and um, I left plenty ahead of time. But I just ran into some awful, awful traffic. Had to call my partner. And that's another thing you should do. If you are running late, man, you got to call your partner and tell him what's going on. I mean, I got there in time, but I was kind of rushing. I mean, you know, we made it there, but I didn't get there nearly as early as I wanted to in what I normally do. So that definitely put some stress on it. So I'd always rather be waiting at the field, waiting in the locker room, than uh, stuck on the road and, and worrying about something. So getting there as early as possible is the best thing you can do. I know sometimes you can't get off work until a certain time, so you are just kind of pushing it. But if that's the case, man, sometimes you got to reevaluate that a little bit and see if you can make it work a little bit better. Um, That puts stress on your partners if you're doing that kind of stuff. Um, So, um, you know, family life and things that are going on, man, you got to do your best to put that out of your mind and just be thinking baseball and thinking of those roles, I mean, it's not really an excuse to go to a game and, and you know, you don't perform very well. And you're like, oh, I was tired or I had a hard day at work. 
the people there, those players, those coaches, the parents, of course, too, they don't really care about that. They expect you to come there and perform at 100%. So um, you have to be able to do that. Um, you know, you, you just got to be thinking about it. As soon as you get in the car and you start moving toward that game, you got to be thinking baseball and thinking umpiring and what you need to do and um, and trying to relax, you know, taking some deep breaths, listening to something pleasant on the radio. Um, if you're riding with your partner, you, you can be doing your pregame and talking about things on the way there and, and talking baseball. And I think those things kind of help to uh, get your mind straight so that you're ready to work once you get out of the car because it's just all business when you get out of the car. And then after that, you know, Hopefully things go smoothly and you get back in the car and you're driving back home. But, you know, if, if it didn't go smoothly, you're thinking about those things and thinking about how you can improve. And then, you know, once you get out of the car, you got to put those things away and, um, you know, be a family person and do the other things that you need to do. So I guess you just got to, you know, have them in different compartments, so that kind of that, those kind of thoughts that you have, you know, because we all have different roles in our lives, right, that we have to uh, uphold. So that's kind of how I look at it. Um, maybe that gives you guys some ideas on what you might do in, in case that's an issue with you. Um, I think when you're rushed, though, if you don't get to a, a site on time, that that's the number one thing that starts causing you stress because you don't know if you're going to be ready in time. Um, I'm one of those people, though. I hate being late, okay? <laughs> I mean, so I know some people, it doesn't bother them so much. But, man, I, uh, there's a lot of things in my life I'm not perfect at. Um, but one of them is I'm on time, all right, um, if at all possible. If I'm not on time, it truly was not my fault. There was nothing I could do about it. I usually leave in plenty of time to get someplace, and I'm there. And so I think that's a good habit to have as uh, as an official of any sport. And uh, if you are not like that, you, you need to start trying to be a little bit more like that. That's just part of taking care of business and um, being a good partner and everything else as well and being reliable to the schools that you're working for. So anyway. If you have any comments or tricks that you have for how you might deal with stress and getting your head into a, a game and clearing it out from all the other things going on in your life, I'd be very interested to hear about it. Feel free to share them with me on Facebook. Uh, tweet them at me at Kevin R. Weber, W-E-B-E-R, or uh, email them to me at SpinalFusion06 at Yahoo.com. So over the next uh, two or three episodes, I'd like to touch on um, how to respond to players and coaches uh, when there is some disagreements out on the baseball field. And uh, it's something I think would be um, two long segments um, to do as one big segment. So I'll, I'll just do some you know, regular size segments um, over the next couple weeks or so. So first, let's talk about... Um, how to avoid arguments. And the big thing is that, you know, arguments and conflicts, um, those are different things, okay? Um, when, when you think of a conflict, that means that somebody doesn't understand a situation. They don't understand why a call was made, why a ruling was made. Um, this is particularly a head coach, right? Uh, and it could be a player as well. I mean, obviously, you hear things from fans or parents or something, uh, or players or assistant coaches, but really we're more concerned about the head coach. And he has a conflict of uh, understanding uh, of you know, why something was, was, was ruled upon in a certain way or why um, there was a judgment call that was made in a certain way. So he might come out and question that and ask you, this isn't an argument. You know, an argument um, is when there's something, uh, it's a more heated situation, Right. You know, conflicts are, are normal. You know, they're, they're likely to occur in you know, all areas of life um, with your with your significant other, with people at your job, or if you're you know, somebody going to school at your school. So regardless of whether you're an umpire or, or anything else. So conflicts in some ways are good because they notify people that there's something wrong and there's something that needs to be modified. And how you handle those, if you handle it in a professional uh, manner, um, you can resolve those conflicts and move on. You know, and we're trying to do that as quickly as possible. Arguments are power struggles, right? Um, individuals they're becoming highly em emotional. 
Um, and they have their own little hidden agendas, and they're trying to win the particular argument. Uh, because of the you know emotional level, arguments cause individuals to you know lose you know their objectivity about the situation, and they become very biased, and, and particularly because they're trying to win it, um, and they're trying to win the situation for their team, or umpires just trying to save face. Sometimes you do that too in an argument, right? So because they become biased, um, emotional, and, and subjective, individuals, in essence, play to win every argument. All right? So we want to avoid those. You know, there's going to be a winner and a loser. We don't really want that. That's not a, a healthy situation, and it's going to cause more friction and potentially other problems later on. So no one likes to lose. Um, arguments are more likely to turn unproductive. Obviously, they could be ugly as well. Um, and usually create some kind of um, unsatisfactory resolution for both parties. So um, in conflict resolution, the best outcome is two winners, right? Um, you might not win as much as you want to, but uh, you don't feel necessarily like a loser. So your tendency is um, to fight to win. That's what you have to rein in as an umpire, all right? Um, at the same time, you're charged with managing the game, right? You're not about to give up control or um, even the appearance of control uh, to a game participant. So how do you do that? Um, well, you, you definitely have to practice extreme self-control. And um, you know, maybe that's not necessarily very easily, easily done, but uh, that is what we're trying to do. So the best way to stay in control of your emotions uh, when someone comes at you is to remain as objective as possible. Easier said than done, but this is what we're trying to do. In fact, one of the best ways to remain objective is to um, exercise, you know, perspective talk. Um, that's what a psychologist might say about it, right? So what you're trying to do is put yourself in the other person's shoes and, you know, try to, in your brain, talk about, you know, why are they upset, you know? Why are they argumentative? Um, your goal is to apply your, you know, this empathetic listening that you're trying to develop uh, to the situation and, you know, better understand what the individual is feeling, all right? Um, they think you blew a call, right? And they're really upset about it. You know that coming out. So you can um, address that. Um, you understand why they're upset. Um, they're upset about the call. Uh, it appears like they're upset at you, in some ways they are, but it's more about the call and things are not going their way. So first you can consider that, you know, maybe you made a mistake, right? Um, if you did, um, it's easier to empathize with the angry person because you can see why, well, you know, you had a, a banger of a play and um, you think you got it right, but you can think, well, I don't know, I'm pretty sure I got it right, but, you know, I can see why they might think that, right? That's always the case. I, I find that the uh, challenging um okay if it is a close play and somebody comes out i can understand why they're out there but sometimes man they don't even come out on a close play then there's something that happens and and you feel like 100 percent you got it right and it wasn't even really that close and they're out there asking you about it and you know you're thinking well what the heck are you doing out here you know i, I know i got that right so that's a little bit harder but you got to be able to do that all right you know if you're someone that played sports and you, know, you got to think back to when you're a player i think back to when i i coached uh, some high school baseball um and some other sports i coached wrestling as well so i was a coach for a little while so i understand uh the competitive nature that coaches go through so i i'm able to try to use some of that empathy in those situations i mean the best i can sometimes i just you know don't understand what they're even asking about but you know you got to listen right so anyway empathize with how this coach is feeling to the best of your ability and, and develop that skill and put yourself in uh, his or her head and what they're thinking. And um, this will accomplish two things. Okay. First, it shows them the player, the coach, whoever it is, but usually it's the coach that you actually care and you're open to listening to them because you are, you're trying to understand what's, what's going through their head. And second, it, it gives them the opportunity to kind of release some of that frustration and, um, the more frustration that they release uh, without, you know, crossing the line, of course, um, and, and you know, saying you statements and everything to you. Um, anyway, the more they're able to do that, the more objective that they'll be when it's your turn to talk. So you're obviously going to let them talk first. Let them do their thing. OK, sometimes that's enough for some coaches. You know, they just want to let you know that uh, this is what they thought if they're pleased in some way or satisfied, I guess, 
that you listen to them. That's all they're really looking for is that, you know, you listen to them. Maybe they don't even really expect you to like change anything. They just want to be listened to and, and, and kind of give you their protest of the situation, right? So anyway, to sidestep an oncoming argument, you know, you should deal with this aggressor um, in a positive but assertive manner, all right? Letting people know that they're valued and that they're respected and that their opinions matter uh, sets up a situation for, you know, a positive conflict resolution, okay? So those are some things to think about. Those are some things to try to develop with skills, and sometimes we're better able to do it um, than at other times. It matters what's going on in our lives and and um, how much um, empathy and um, patience that we have with people. But uh, it's something that we're expected to have all the time, so you've got to try to develop that so that it's something that is just more natural for you, okay? So anyway, how does all that make you uh, a better and more respected umpire um, as, you know, you would hope to be, right? So it's no secret that, you know, in most walks of life, the the people who get respect and admiration are not the ones who are the most liked or um, are the easiest to get along with. True respect comes when people feel they are dealt with honestly and fairly. That's what you're trying to do out there. You're not trying to make friends. You're trying to run the game the best you can and do it honestly and fairly and, um, Listen to people and be professional. If you do that, you're going to gain the respect. You don't have to be best buds with them, right? You're not going to get it by getting emotional and yelling and screaming. Um, You'll get that by being assertive and fair and honest with them. That's what you got to try to do. And listen to them when they're asking legitimate questions in a professional way to you, right? So anyway, don't confuse this with like aggression, okay? Uh, So to be aggressive is to get what you want without really caring about what the other people have to say um, and just trying to succeed and trying to like win this situation, right? Great way to quickly make enemies if you're a person doing that and uh, lose respect of the coaches and players and and others around there and and maybe even your fellow umpires, right? So um, this is an important skill that um, everyone needs uh, to work on. I mean, in all walks of life, I guess. So anyway... Being assertive is getting what you want while making sure you avoid hurting people or taking advantage of anyone along the way. It, um, you know, it sets up a situation where you know, the players and coaches, they're heard, um, their opinions are respected, and um, both parties maybe can walk away you know, in, a, in a kind of win-win situation in, in which people don't get ejected and, and uh, you know, something ends up being a circus, right? So listen what people have to say. Listen to your own instincts. Um, always try to be honest and do the right thing when you're out on the ball field. Be assertive. Um, but that doesn't mean like winning friends or trying to appease people. That's not what I'm saying. It means responding to adversity in an honest, open way so arguments never have a chance to, to just kind of grow those seeds and turn into something a little more drastic. So that way, you maintain control during the entire discussion. You steer the conflict toward a resolution because you're in control. Um, all the way while allowing some irate coach or whoever it is to have their say and uh, feel their points are truly heard because you're listening to them. But you're still going to, you're in control. You're going to make your ruling the way that you think is fair and honest, right? And hopefully, everybody kind of wins in that situation. So anyway, that's a far cry from allowing somebody to uh, draw draw you into this, some conflict on some emotional level that quickly gets blown out of proportion and turns into some big argument. So those are a few things to think about as far as um, differences between arguments and conflicts. Um, next week, we'll talk about how to handle arguers and uh, different types of arguers that you might encounter on the baseball field. Recently, um, NCAA Division I Baseball Umpire Advisor Mark Ditsworth published a little article on um, the NCAA Baseball Arbiter Hub 
about exercising proper protocols and how doing so will help you gain success in your umpiring. And I think that they're very um, um, appropriate for any level that you might be working, um, from Little League all the way through NCAA, you know, and, and pro ball too, if, if that's your thing as well. Because um, every league and every organization um, has their way of doing things, and they expect you to kind of do them and not just, you know, be the lone ranger or something and doing things your own way. So for the NCAA, they have the CCA Baseball Umpires Manual, and, and people are expected to uh, follow the mechanics that are laid down in there uh, to the best of their ability and not just, you know, go along on their own and just kind of figure it out themselves. If you do do that, um, and especially if you're being observed or something, then you're going to be... Um, Mark down for that and have trouble moving along the ladder um, if that is your goal. So he goes through several things. And um, uh, the first thing he mentions is game management. Um, you know, basically it's an umpire, you know, who performs well enough to control games and keep the flow of a game moving. That's something that's important at every level. Um, umpires, you know, need to communicate well with everyone involved in the game and never, like, show arrogance or um, posturing. But you want to display confidence and passion and, and energy and focus and, you know, always have a plan and, and a way to handle things when, when they get tense because they do, all right? So some of the um, examples he mentioned about game management protocols are that uh, you should, uh, you know, in your pregame and stuff, cover these kind of things. Um, and we can talk about pregames as we get a little bit closer to uh, the season and stuff. Proper handling of situations, um, taking care of all responsibilities for your position, um, a positive attitude, issuing warnings when they're warranted, uh, knowing when to get a crew together to, to review something, and if you're working big-time NCAA ball for video review as well. Um, all forms of timing. We have different timing mechanisms that we use now for NCAA baseball, but there are um, timing things that you should be doing for um, other levels of baseball too, right? Uh, knowing the rules as written. You know, it, it's good if you can quote certain rules, right? Especially the ones that are the most important. Communication with your partners. Um, having a plan when things go wrong because, you know, they do invariably from time to time. Dealing with dugout situations uh, with, and players and assistant coaches uh, and doing it in a respectful and uh, professional way. Um, and communicating charge trips um, to the coach in the press box. We have um, different types of charge trips um, compared to high school ball for NCAA, and, and there's a proper way to do that. All right. So, um, you know, there's lots of umpire protocols, and um, the best way to remember them all is to. Think of all your responsibilities um, and what it takes to make a complete umpire. And there, there's many things, but um, we can handle them. We just have to be very uh, conscious of them at all times. All right. So um, if it's your goal um, to follow strong protocols, you got to remember that you know baseball changes in lots of different ways. Um, it's not always about the outs and safes, as uh, one of my mentors, Bruce Doan, always says. It's about taking care of business. Um, and being um, a good team player, and um, you know that's part of being a good communicator with your partners and with uh, with the um, with the coaches and players and the um, the universities or schools that we deal with, um, and the high schools and everything else, right? So, a um, few examples of um, umpire protocols: um, improve your field presence. All right, um, umpire position the right way that's put down in the manuals that you're supposed to follow. Um, being a good communicator, once again. Uh, proper mannerisms during uh, confrontations. Uh, we've kind of mentioned those before, but uh, we'll talk about some of those in the future as well. Um, give answers to questions um, if they have a question, and don't stay too long. We're not looking for arguments, right? Take care of your positions of responsibilities, uh, whatever you might be on the field at the time. Uh, no rules as written. Always look the part, you know, good uniforms and everything is looking the way it should. And uh, show focus, um, not having, you know, your arms crossed, hands in the pockets, all that kind of stuff. Uh, be professional 
even when you don't want to. <laughs> There's times where it's tough, but uh, you've got to always take the higher ground. Find your calm on the field, um, especially when things are getting rough. Um, know your mechanics. Um, be a team umpire. You're not this out there for yourself. You're part of a team. And have a high focus for the entire game, whether it's a seven-inning game for you or a nine-inning game. Um, and, um, you know, just do other things like, you know, being professional at all times and making sure you're doing timing and different things you're supposed to do um, in between innings. If you do those things, um, you'll be on your road to uh, success. So I, th- I thought those are very appropriate for all levels and uh, some things to definitely think about as we move into this new season. I'm sure some of you are aware that Professional Umpire School uh, ended this past week. And with that in mind, we are going to take a look at Harry Wendelstedt for our Umpire Spotlight. Because, of course, his name is attached to one of the professional schools down in Florida. Um, on a personal note, I've got a, a friend and colleague down there uh, that went to Wendelstedt this uh, past session. And he did very well, Matt, Matt Watowski. And uh, he did well enough that he made it to the advanced school. Uh, so he's staying, staying down um, down south, and um, well, actually in Vero Beach. And uh, he's going to go to the advanced school and try to get himself a job in professional baseball. So congratulations to him. He also won uh, an award for Best Umpire's Umpire, you know, the, um, the person that the, the campers voted as the person they most like to work with. So that's that's a great honor. So um, I think he's got a really good shot to maybe get himself a job somewhere in the minor leagues and um, hope he does. And it be interesting to uh, to hear what, what he has to say about his experiences down there and um, and the experiences that will be coming, coming his way. Um, I'm due to umpire some, some games and stuff with him, so... Um, hopefully he'll be around to do that before he might head off to his minor league assignment, if that's what he ends up getting. Um, and certainly I'm looking at some point to, to talk to him and try to get him on the show here. But anyway, let's talk about Harry Wendelstedt. So Harry Wendelstedt, of course, was a longtime National League umpire. Uh, he retired a couple years before the, uh, the leagues were joined together back in 98, he retired, so 33 years in the big leagues um, from the 60s all the way through the 90s. So quite a, um, a span of time with uh, lots of different types of ball players and styles of baseball um, and things he had to adapt to um, during that time. So um, he was known for his, um, his presence, for sure. Um, uh, Harry was. Uh, he was a large man um, that, you know, basically... If there was an argument or there was a situation or some kind of conflict going on on the ball field, if Harry came in, it was like the police came in. <laughs> right? <laughs> Things get broken up. Okay, we got nothing. We got nothing here. Move it along. You know that kind of thing. So, um, but a, a well-respected umpire that uh, that uh, had lots of accolades, which we'll get to later. Nonetheless, um, Harry was uh, born in July 1938 in Baltimore, and uh, his father was a truck driver. His mom stayed at home and in you know, took care of the kids and everything, and he, he attended Baltimore Public Schools. Um, and then he had a couple of years of college before he joined the Marines. So obviously that contributed to his toughness as well. In 1962, he was trying to decide whether he's going to re-enlist in the Marine Corps or uh, attend the Al Summers Umpire School in Ormond Beach. So obviously he attended the school, and that definitely sealed his career path. Um, it only took him four years in the minor leagues to reach the major league level. And uh, once he did, in 1977, um, he uh, ended, ended up taking over the summer school. He was uh, teaching there pretty much every year uh, up to that point because that was something that was very important to him. He was he was an umpire's umpire, let's just put it that way. And, and he loved umpiring and, and loved teaching it as well and passing on his knowledge to the next generation, which is something we also be trying to do. Of course, uh, Harry passed away in 2012, and around that time, or actually a little bit before, I believe, his son Hunter took over 
the umpire school. And, and of course, Hunter is a current major league umpire. On an interesting note, um, when Hunter was first making it to the major leagues, he was between AAA and and the big leagues. He was on his dad's crew for a little while, and um, they had some interesting experiences uh, with some game situations. But uh, nonetheless, let's talk about Harry. So Harry is uh, is the only umpire other than Silk O'Loughlin, who worked back in the, like the 20th century, who was behind the plate for more, um, you know, for as many no hitters. He was behind the plate for five no hitters, um, including those thrown by Hall of Famers Gaylord Perry and Bob Gibson. So most people, you're hoping maybe you might have one significant no hitter in your career, maybe two if you're lucky. Um, but uh, he was able to do that five times. He was known for having a, a large or wide, anyway, strike zone, um, a little bit more pitcher friendly. So I guess that's not surprising. Probably the most significant call, um, and there was a couple, but the most significant and ballsy kind of call that Harry Wondestead ever made was in 1968. Um, so in May 1968, if um, you recall your baseball history, um, Don Drysdale was trying to set the um, consecutive innings without giving up a run record, okay, consecutive scoreless innings record. Um, he's trying to break the record that Walter Johnson had um, back in 1913 for 55 and two-thirds innings. So anyway, in a ball game on 31st in the ninth inning um, the, uh, between the Dodgers and, and the Giants, Don Drysdale, who was going for the record, was working in a, for his fifth straight sh- uh, shutout, and the bases were loaded, and he hit the Giants' Dick Dietz on the elbow. All right, and the pitch would have sent Dietz to first and forced in a run, and it would have ended the scoreless inning streak. But uh, Harry Wendelstedt, invoking a rule that most people didn't see very often, uh, declared that Dietz had not tried to avoid the pitch and that he had to remain at bat. Of course, that was the way the rule was done at that point. Still is in the major leagues, but not in college baseball, right? Anyway, Drysdale retired Dietz, and he completed his shutout, and then um, that call allowed Drysdale to um, continue his streak, and he went on to pass Walter Johnson. And, of course, it was a record that uh, was around for 20 years before Oral Hershiser broke it back in 1988. Anyway, quite a ballsy call, um, especially in that kind of situation. One that in 1968 almost never was called. At that point, some people had never seen such a call made. Um, so um, it, most people from the account say that, you know, he definitely got the call right. He did not try to get out of the way. I mean, you know, most players don't. They, if they've got, uh, you know, a, a count, you know, uh, against a, a really good pitcher and they can get hit by a pitch and get a run in or something like that, they're going to do whatever they got to do. That's what ball players do. So um, got to give props to Harry Wonstead for being the kind of guy that can make that kind of call. That's probably why he should be, um, well, he is being considered for the Hall of Fame. He might be, you know, the next umpire to make it into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I know Tommy Lasorda and some other um, Hall of Famers have talked about that and tried to to get him, um, you know, moving in that direction. And I'm sure at some point or another it's going to happen. So like I mentioned, uh, Harry was known for keeping a pretty wide strike zone. Um, when a batter struck out swinging, he uh, usually like flailed his right arm straight up in the air. Uh, when a batter struck out looking, he applied the notorious chainsaw move. Uh, that's kind of what um, his little style was um, at the time. One other incident that uh, happened in, in Harry's career that uh, is of, of note was in the 1988 National League Championship Series. as between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Mets. Uh, of course, we know the Dodgers would win it and go on to win the World Series, but they were big underdogs. Anyway, in Game 3, and this is, of course, October 8th, um, the Dodgers pitcher Jay Howe uh, ended up getting ejected from the game by Harry for having pine tar in his glove. Uh, Mets manager... David Johnson asked the umpires, uh, including, you know, of course, Harry, to check his glove. And uh, since he was the crew chief, he ejected him for finding the pine tar. And, and of course, Howell later got suspended for the rest of the series. Uh, I guess it didn't make too much of a difference because they won the World Series. But, uh, again, um, a significant call and a um, obviously a, 
a volatile situation, a league championship series, and he was always the kind of guy that was going to do the right thing and make the right call and didn't really care what others thought about it. So, as far as his accomplishments and stuff, um, Harry umpired in the World Series in 1973, 1980, 1986, 1991, and 1995. Um, he was a crew chief back in 1980 and 95. He um, umpired seven national and he actually called balls and strikes in the 76 All-Star game. So um, they also, of course, instituted the Division Series before he retired. So he was the um, in the NLDS in 95, 96, and 97. As far as uniform numbers, he wore number 21, and that's the number that his son Hunter wears to this day to honor his father. If you're an umpire for as long as Harry Wendelstadt was an umpire, you get to be... Uh, Frequently, you get to be part of historic baseball moments, and and he certainly was a part of a few of those. Um, with his five World Series, of course, um, he you know was able to partake in some interesting moments, including the nineteen eighty six World Series. He was at third base in Game Six when the Mets staged their huge comeback with two outs in the tenth inning, and uh, you know Bill Buckner had the ball go through his legs and everything. Um, he was at third base for that game. And then, of course, he was at second base when they won game seven, the Mets did. Um, then in 1991, if you remember that World Series, he was at first base in the 10th inning of game seven when the Twins scored the only run of the game to defeat the uh, Braves. That was the John Smoltz-Jack Morris pitching battle, one of the best in World Series history. And, and he was part of that game as well. So, um, I've gotten to hear a few stories about Harry Wendelstep uh, from Brent Rice. He's the current head of officials here um, for high school officials in the state of Michigan. And he was a longtime uh, administrator and instructor, kind of ran the Wendelstep School down in Florida before he uh, got this new position up here in Michigan. Um, so he knew Harry Wendelstedt and, and Hunter and a lot of other um, professional umpires and major league umpires. So uh, when I hear him speak at different clinics and things, like I saw him this past weekend, um, he always seems to mention uh, Harry Wendelstedt, different things that he said, different things that he believed. And um, I've definitely taken that as, um, you know, some of his comments is, you know, that he was a really good umpire's kind of umpire and somebody that would have been a wonderful person to know and to learn some things from about not just umpiring, but just about how to conduct your life and how to be um, a good person. So that's our umpire spotlight for this week. Harry Wendelstedt. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. Things are moving along pretty well on the show. I'm getting a lot of feedback. It seems like every week I get something, maybe one or two things from somebody. Either they email me something, they might tweet something at me. Uh, they write me a message on the the Hammer Podcast Facebook page. Um, remember, you can you can do that as well if you got something you want me to try to cover or just a comment about something that I... Um, mention on the podcast, maybe a correction if I made a mistake, which I certainly do from time to time. So uh, email address, SpinalFusion06 at Yahoo.com. Twitter, the handle is at Kevin R. Weber. And I spell Weber with one B, so make sure you spell it correctly, I guess, right? So um, we usually average, um, I don't know, about 125 more diehard listeners each podcast sometimes we get a little bit more a little bit less so it keeps going up a little bit each week uh, we continue to reach out to different parts of the united states and you know there's some people that listen to it internationally but like i say i always think that it's just somebody that's an american or or a canadian i guess because um, you know in canada baseball is pretty big still too but anyway uh, somebody in north america that is uh, venturing off overseas and maybe downloading the podcast for the plane ride back or something like that. That's that's what I'm always assuming anyway. So um, we just had our first uh, NCAA 
Division Two games, I know, and, and some Division One are starting to get ready. Um, games that were played this past week down in the warmer climates. And uh, it won't be too long before those of us up here in the cold climates are going to be bungling up and going out to the ball diamonds and trying to call some baseball games. So you got to make sure that you are getting yourself ready, making sure you're in shape, your, your body is stretched out, your mind is, is ready. And uh, if you can, get with some coaches. You know, it could be any level that you can accomplish this with. And uh, see some pitches, you know, call some pitches. I'm going to try to do that this next weekend, and uh, hopefully that will work out. I, I might report back to you and let you know how those things went um, after next Saturday. So until next time, keep calling strikes. <laughs>